It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. I'm obviously very happy with the outcome of the case, and it looks like I'm not having to retire from my day job after all. But at the same time, I'm unbelievably frustrated that baseless claims like this are allowed to go to court at all. It's the second copyright infringement trial Ed Sheeran has had to go through in a year, and he made a dramatic vow from the witness stand that he would quit music if he was found guilty of infringing Marvin Gaye's 1973 classic, Let's Get It On. But after a two-week trial, it took a jury only two hours to come out with a verdict clearing Sheeran and finding that he and his co-writer had created his Grammy-winning hit, Thinking Out Loud, independently, which is an absolute defense against copyright infringement. Sheeran had defended himself with his guitar, demonstrating for the jury how similar chord progressions are commonplace musical elements found in numerous songs that no songwriter can own. He did a similar demonstration on the Howard Stern Show on Sirius XM. So my one is, um, when your legs don't work like they used to before, and then there's, have I told you lately that I loved you, and then, um, um, People get ready, there's a train coming, um, and then, uh, what was the, looks like we made it, look how far we've come, my baby, and oh, she breaks. Just like a woman. I mean, there was there was 101 songs. Despite the win, Sheeran expressed frustration at the current litigation frenzy that threatens songwriters. It's devastating to be accused of stealing someone else's song when we've put so much work into our livelihoods. I'm just a guy with a guitar who loves writing music for people to enjoy. Joining me is intellectual property litigator Terence Ross, a partner at Catanuchin Rosenman. Terry, the music industry was watching this lawsuit with trepidation. Does the verdict alleviate the fears? You know, will it discourage frivolous copyright lawsuits? You would hope so. It is certainly significant in that regard and seems to indicate that the pendulum in these copyright in song cases has swung back in favor of the singer-songwriters and away from the plaintiffs. You know, this all started with a 2015 lawsuit against Farrell Williams and Robin Thicke for their Blurred Lines song, which purportedly infringed Marvin Gaye's 1977 Gotta Give It Up, and an enormous jury verdict there that got reduced a little bit on appeal. But that sort of created this target for plaintiffs to aim at and encourage them to bring more lawsuits. And now looking back, we've had multiple wins for defendants 
And it seems like that case involving Robin Thicke and Farrell Williams was actually an outlier and that we may have made too much of it. And keep in mind, there was a unique situation going there in that Robin Thicke had given just a dreadful deposition, which he later claimed he'd been high giving it. And they played that to the jury, and it was so bad, you know, the videotape, that it may have influenced the jury in ways that we didn't fully comprehend at the time. Now with a this fantastic performance, and I can't call it anything less than a performance by Ed Sheeran on the stand in his case, we see how these cases really do favor the defendant if the defendant is a credible person who gives good testimony and can explain the basis of his song. Yeah, I believe that it was the defense attorney in the Blurred Lines case that said that Sheeran made all the difference here. He was so committed. He was in the court every day. He was on the stand for multiple days. He's this nice guy, but also he took on the defense now and again and even called the musicologist for the other side, said what he was doing was criminal. You're exactly right, June. And he had made the mistake early in his career of caving in and settling a couple copyright lawsuits. The reality is that it's often cheaper to settle some of these copyright suits than to spend the money to defend against them. The problem is, if you get that reputation, people just put you at the top of their list of targets to go after for copyright infringement, even though you've not been held liable for copyright infringement and you don't think you did it. And a couple of years ago, Ed Sheeran apparently said to himself, enough is enough. He defended aggressively a copyright lawsuit in the UK, which he won. It was last year. This case has been going on since before the pandemic. It was brought. And he's been aggressively defending it. And I think with this win, two wins in two years, sending a very strong message that if you come after him for copyright infringement, you better be prepared to go the distance and you better be prepared to get your rear end kicked because he is not giving in anymore, not settling these lawsuits. And that's going to make all the difference going forward for him. The jury found that Sheeran had created thinking out loud independently. That's an absolute defense against copyright infringement, even if it's a song you've heard and it might have influenced you? It is an absolute defense. So you could say that two songs have some substantial similarity, which is the test for copyright infringement. But if the song was independently created, it just doesn't matter that they're substantially similar. That's an absolute defense. And the key, I think, here at this trial was Ed Sheeran getting up on the stand, as you said multiple times, and explaining the songwriting process in such detail, even explaining he wanted to take a break, go take a shower, came back, his co-writer was working on some chords. The detail is what brought it home to the jury that this wasn't in any sense a copying, that there was a true creative process here that he was able to relate to them and explain in enormous specific factual detail and then was backed up by his co-writer on this particular song, Amy Wadge. Do you think the musicologists played a part in this? I mean, whether one was better than the other, whether the jury liked one more than the other? So musicologists testify as expert witnesses. The only difference between expert witness and any other witness is that an expert witness is allowed to offer his or her opinion based on their expertise, whereas a lay witness can only testify to facts that they actually saw, witnessed, experienced. 
And as a result, sometimes jurors, because there's this process of qualifying an expert, making them seem to be great, jurors say, well, they must know something more than we do because the judge has specifically said they're an expert in the field and we may want to defer to them. My experience has been that in these sorts of cases where you have a very articulate defendant who can explain the songwriting process, that the musicologists sort of flip into the background a little bit and are less important. Now, that said here, in this so-called battle of the experts between the two musicologists, it's clear that Ed Sheeran's guy got the better of the argument and got helped in that respect enormously by Ed Sheeran's own testimony. In his testimony during his defense part of the case, Ed Sheeran specifically went after the plaintiff's musicologist and explained how this particular chord progression, or at least the second chord in the chord progression, was not substitutable and how it really made a significant difference in how a pop song came out. And he played it and explained to the jury almost as if he was his own musicologist expert. And I think that's really was the turning point. His musicologist then picked up on that theme and supported it and sort of gave legal credence to it. But again, I think this was Ed Sheeran's testimony that won the day. The jury verdict doesn't set any legal precedent, but the way that Sheeran testified about chord progressions he used that are common among songwriters and building blocks of music, do you think this provides a blueprint for other songwriters accused of copyright infringement? Well, the defense here certainly wrote a script on how to handle this sort of copyright infringement lawsuit and if followed should yield similar results. The interesting thing about this whole case is that the judge studiously avoided writing any decisions that might have served in any way as precedential. It was very curious. It makes it very difficult to challenge on appeal as well. What you have here is a straight-up jury verdict with a jury finding, and appellate courts say that absent some sort of corruption, some sort of fraud committed, they got proper instructions, which they did, that you don't overturn a jury verdict. So it's interesting in that respect, because I think it's less the precedential value of this case that matters going forward than sort of the notion that defendants are no longer going to roll over and settle just because of an accusation of copyright infringement. They're going to vigorously defend and that this is not going to be easy pickings, which is how it's been viewed for the last five, six, seven years since the Robin Thicke blurred lines case. Despite all we've said about the defense here, there are two more lawsuits against Sheeran over the same song brought by investment banker and musician David Pullman and Structured Asset Sales, which bought a portion of Ed Townsend's estate. And after the verdict, Pullman said that he and his lawyers had learned from the trial, we know what to expect. Why another trial about the same song? It's a great question, and it's a real problem in this field. My understanding of the situation is that a third-party funder obtained rights to portion of the copyright owned by Ed Townsend's estate, which gave them independent standing to sue for infringement. I think there's going to be a real question when that lawsuit is ripe, whether or not the verdict here, which was a specific verdict of independent creation, is what's known as res judicata. In other words, it decides the issue once and for all. That motion will have to be brought by the defense, and it's a pretty strong motion. So they may not get to a trial in that second lawsuit. Although Pullman said one of his lawsuits would be different because it involved a copyright on the recording of Let's Get It On, rather than just the sheet music. I know we've discussed it before, the sheet music versus the recording, whether that does make a difference. So... One of the anomalies of 20th century U.S. music that we did not have 
copyright protection for recorded sound until very late in the 20th century, uh, 1978, if I recall correctly. The law that was the copyright law for most of the 20th century, the Copyright Act of 1909, did not allow for copyright in recorded sound because it was in its infancy. They did allow in copyright law in the United States, going well back into the 19th century, allowed for copyright in sheet music. And so at the time that Let's Get It On was published and recorded, there was only copyright available in sheet music. Now, there is one sort of variant on that. There are states, individual states, that have allowed copyright in recorded sound earlier than the United States Congress did. And apparently, they're going to make some sort of claim under state law. You remember a couple of years ago, the old pop group, the Turtles, who recorded all of their music prior to the Copyright Act of 1976 coming into effect and allowing for copyright recorded sound. They brought a series of lawsuits across the country under various state laws accusing the streaming services of infringing their copyright, purported copyright, and ultimately settled when they got a favorable decision out of one of those states, I think Florida, maybe. So there's this issue that has always been hanging out there and has never been decided by the Supreme Court. The Copyright Act, both the 1909 Act and the 1976 Act, preempted all other laws. But because recorded sound wasn't covered by the 1909 Act, it wasn't, in theory, preemptive of recorded sound copyright, because there was none. So the states were free to do what they wanted to do. And so that's what the reference here is with respect to this other lawsuit. In the Sheeran case, it was a computerized version of Let's Get It On, based on the sheet music. If the plaintiffs in the next case can actually play the song, do you think that would make a difference, even if Sheeran testifies as he, as he did here? So it clearly made a difference in the Blurred Lines case. I was not in the courtroom when that happened. A lot of people said that the playing of those two when listened to by the jury, seemed to have an impact upon the jury. So it is possible that it would have that impact here. I've listened to both songs. You know a little bit about music, but I'm not some sort of musicologist expert. <laughs> and I'm not sure that it would make a difference to me. But, you know, every jury's different, and I'll have to wait and see what happens. But again, I'm, I think it's important to note that the jury made a really important factual finding here, that this was an independent creation. That should really, in my view, control. Another thing about these suits is... This was seven years, and you think about how long the the Stairway to Heaven and the Katy Perry was. This involves the artists with lawyers for so many years. Yes, this case is an example of what happened uh, to the court system in certain jurisdictions around the country during the pandemic. This case was filed before the pandemic was moving at a nice clip. And then the pandemic hit, and that particular court, the uh, Southern District of New York, which is the court for the city of New York, just froze. They had trouble dealing with the whole pandemic issue. Not every court in America did that. I tried a virtual case in May of 2020 when the, the pandemic first started, the very first virtual trial in the United States, and which did just fine that way. Not every court was capable of managing the process. And then once the court reopened and they started getting a handle on how to do cases during the pandemic, they were stuck with the unusual situation that Ed Sheeran was not allowed to come into the country because of various international bans on travel during the pandemic. And the court rightfully said defendant is entitled to be there for trial, entitled to testify. 
and should be heard live. And so that delayed it even further. And then all of that delay in that particular court, Southern District of New York, created this backlog so that when we finally got out from under the pandemic and the court system, you had all these cases that had to be tried first because they were criminal cases. In the United States, we have a Speedy Trial Act. You've got to try criminal cases when there's a certain point in time or the defendant walks. And so all those criminal cases got priority over civil cases. And so it took better part of a year and a half before we got around to um, this copyright lawsuit. And it is unfortunate that it took so long, but it's not the norm. And hopefully things will start getting back to normal. The deliberation time here is also not the norm. That jury took only like two hours to do this. I mean, I mean think about this, Jim. Yeah. The jury gets back there and they take a half an hour to get organized, get a cup of coffee, <laughs> whatever. And that's assuming that it's not the lunch break already, in which case they kill an hour. Then they spend 15, 20 minutes arguing about four person because you got to pick the four person first. And the bailiff brings in the forms and they go, they go, okay, well, what is it that we're supposed to send that sort of thing? You know, so that two plus hours is probably only an hour of deliberation time. It'll be interesting to see if those other cases get to trial because Ed Sheeran now it's his second time testifying, second time winning. I think he knows what to do now. Thanks so much, Terry. That's intellectual property litigator Terrence Ross, a partner at Catton Rosenman. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.